0: excited when I got to be a player in a Dungeons and Dragons game for the first time. I was young and one of my friends at school was the Dungeon Master, which is the person who runs the game for those who don't play. I went over to his house, and we went into the basement. First of all, it was an amazing basement. It had lots of toys, a slot car table, and then this great area for us to play D&D in. And my friends and I were pretty young, and what I found really amazing is that my friend's older brother also played Dungeons and & Dragons. And while everyone my age was playing, he seemed to have a better understanding of the game. He actually role-played, and I was fascinated by this. This is the game I wanted to play. And so, I watched and studied him playing. I was interested in his character, which was a magic user, and started reading about magic users in the game, because I thought, oh, I should play a magic user. But I was playing a thief, a halfling thief, and one day while we were playing, he and I, as characters, were isolated from the rest of the party of adventurers. So they had to leave the room while we played. And he got into role-playing, And I fired right back. I stayed in character, and it was fun. I could also tell that he was having fun. And I think from that point on, he looked at me as a different type of player, someone who took the game more seriously. After that, he was much friendlier to me, to the point where he asked if I wanted to see this game that he had on his computer. Computer? A game? Sign me up. He turned on the computer, loaded up a game, and it was a game called Wizardry. I didn't know what to make of it at first, but then, as he started to play it, I could see how it was like Dungeons & Dragons. Now, I was only supposed to be there for a couple of minutes after we had finished roleplaying, but I sat there quietly watching him the entire time that he played. I was there until his family was ready to eat dinner, and then I had to go home. The whole way back, all I was thinking about was, I need a computer, and I need to play Wizardry. Those were two things I needed to do, because I loved playing Dungeons & Dragons with my friends, but they didn't always want to play. If I owned this computer, I could be playing a game like Dungeons & Dragons all of the time. And when I did get a computer that could play Wizardry, it was one of the first games I got, and I don't know if I did anything else that summer but play Wizardry. Dungeons and Dragons opened up whole new worlds for me as a game, not just with pen and paper, but it also coincided with the rise of video games. I had always had an interest in computers before this, but seeing how these two interests could merge assured that a computer would be in my future. So on today's show, I'd like to talk to you about Wizardry, Proving Grounds of the Mad Overlord. It's an amazing game and the first in a franchise, so I will cover just this game. I will touch on the sequels, but maybe those will be future podcasts. I will talk about the people who made the game, the company they created. We'll talk about how to play, We'll talk about its sequels, its reception, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. Wizardry, Proving Grounds of the Mad Overlord, which moving forward I will just refer to as Wizardry, is the first in the Wizardry series of role-playing video games. It was made by Robert Woodhead and Andrew Greenberg, and the original version of the game came out around 1980, and we'll talk about its interesting release schedule in a little bit. Let me just tell you, this is the first in a series of video games developed by a company called Sirtech. And if you haven't seen them, you've definitely seen components of them in other games. Because they were highly influential on all of the role-playing games that were to follow. But I'm going to start off here by reading the back of the box. The original Apple II version. It's a beautiful black box with red lettering. Has a green dragon on the front. Very stylized. It says on the front, Wizardry proving ground of the Mad Overlord. A fantasy role-playing simulation. And we go to the back, a little plainer, but it has the great wizardry logo there, which is the word wizardry with a sword through it. it. has a couple of reviews on the back from people like Neil Shapiro at Popular Mechanics, David Lubar at Creative Computing, and Margot Tomervik from Soft Talk Magazine. Let's read their description of the game. Are you ready to step into the world of Wizardry? Unparalleled by any other fantasy game, Wizardry allows for unlimited combination of strategies and tactics, so that each quest in the maze is always fresh and interesting. Never before has a fantasy game been so real. Proving Grounds of the Mad Overlord is the first Wizardry scenario. Starting in the safety of the castle, you assemble one to six adventurers to explore the magic and mystery of the 10-level 3D maze. Your characters may be one of five races and eight professions, each with their own strengths and weaknesses, to form a party which is just right for your intended expedition. Under your command, brawny warriors, frail mages, spellcasting priests, and nimble thieves accumulate experience and treasure. As your characters gain experience, they develop greater capabilities to become even better adventurers, allowing them to venture deeper into the maze. Did you buy the correct armor and magic items in the castle? Are the characters able to cooperate effectively to achieve their mission? Will your characters be strong enough to escape the castle or an upper world? Is your party properly prepared? Be wary. The treacherous 3D maze has some tricks and traps of its own. Hundreds of monsters, many with magical powers equal to your own. Pits, chutes, rotating rooms, teleporters, special one-of-a-kind surprises, and much more will keep you on your toes for many, many hours of fun. You'll even be able to challenge your characters with subsequent scenarios featuring new dangers and more formidable foes. Watch for the second scenario, Night of Diamonds that's really interesting that there would be another scenario that would follow, Knight of Diamonds, and your characters would transfer to the new game. So you had to have this game to play the next one, and you would bring them over with you. So there's some bullet points. This is the first wizardry scenario. It's designed for characters level 1 to 13, for ages 10 to adult, from 1 to 6 players, 10 level 3D maze, maze and monsters in high-resolution graphics, and a 48-page illustrated manual. And that's not all you got in this box, because interestingly enough, they include what they call a map plotting aid. So you are being encouraged to map this world that you're entering into right in the box. Something that almost everyone who plays video games would pick up on later on. But right away they knew if you're going to play this game, you're going to map it. And they probably picked that up playing more text-based adventures that had come before it. Where you could travel around in a world with no visual indication. And these plotting aids or graph paper would be a really big help. So you get an idea of the game from the description, and it's quite a description, very wordy. The specifics of how you play is very similar to how you play other role-playing games, and if you've played ones that have followed, you are familiar with all the tropes involved. You start in a town, which in this case is represented only as text, you don't get the nice map, and you make a party of up to six characters, and you get to choose the race you want them to be, elf, human, dwarf, hobbit, or gnome, and then there are alignments, good, neutral, or evil. All things that if you played D&D you'd be familiar with. And there were four basic classes. Priest, Mage, Thief, and Fighter. There were also four Elite classes. And this is really interesting. Those were Bishop, Samurai, Lord, and Ninja. Oh boy, who didn't want to be a ninja in this game? And you would unlock these classes by playing the original classes. They're a kind of great way to level up a character with a certain amount of specialty. So, for example, a lord is a fighter with priest spells, so what would be in D&D called a paladin, maybe. A ninja has fighter and thieving abilities, so it takes two abilities and combines them into one, multi-classing. After you've built your party, gotten your weapons and armor, you descend into Trebor's castle. And Trebor is Robert, spelled backwards, one of the creators of the game. Both of the creators get integrated into this game this way. And then there are 10 levels, each one more challenging. In Adventurer parlance, this was a dungeon crawl. You move through a maze, find treasure, avoid traps, figure out the maze, kill monsters, get experience, level up, and you repeat that. All the way until you get to the evil archwizard, Werdne, which is Andrew spelled backward at the bottom level, and you need to get his amulet. It is a very simple-looking game by today's standards, with most of the screen devoted to text. But the real innovation is this little tiny portion in the corner that is a kind of first-person view of the dungeon you're in. Whenever you encounter something, combat begins, and it's usually a group of one to four monsters. What makes Wizardry really interesting is that it's very early. And so it's trying to create something new. It also is much more like early D&D, where characters tended to die really quickly. There's a big difference between original D&D and those that would follow. I felt like it was much easier to die in earlier versions. And it's very easy to die in this game, because you don't have the save ability that you would have on later computer games, where you could just save as you moved along. You needed to exit the dungeon to save the game. And if everybody died, you cannot continue. You have to start a whole new party. When you do create the new party, you will find the items and bodies of the dead adventurers who you were playing in the dungeon. Because of the sort of learning curve and the difficulty, this game could suck up many hours, and when you start to add to the fact that you want to try all the different classes and all the different combinations, you could see how an entire summer could disappear while you're playing Wizardry. Are you a fan of the Retroist podcast? Do you like more retro stuff? Why not check out the Retroist Patreon? Go to patreon.com slash Retroist. Supporters of the show get bonus episodes, bonus tracks, bonus scans, access to the Retroist Discord, and more feel good about yourself, and make a difference in the world. Support The Retroist. Robert Woodhead was a programmer, and he was working on a mailing program, which was sort of a database, that would help his mother's business. And he was partnered with Fred Serotech, The name of the program was called InfoTree, and it was written on an Apple computer, which is important because wizardry would be written on an Apple computer. They would bring their program to a computer show, and people really seemed to like it. The company they would found was called Syrotech. With the success of InfoTree, they decided that they would try video games and worked on a space-based game called Galactic Attack which they actually came up with the concept while driving home from that computer show. Galactic Attack seemed to be a minor success, at least enough to fund the very next game. And the company that they would found around the next game would become Certec, and the game they would work on was one that Robert Woodhead had been playing at Cornell when he was a student there with a fellow student named Andrew Greenberg. And that game was called Dungeons of Despair. They worked on the game, and they would release it in beta around 80 or 81, and then they got a letter from TSR, who made Dungeons and Dragons, because Dungeons of Despair was a double D title, D&D. Dungeons of Despair, Dungeons and Dragons, Gary Gygax didn't like that, and they threatened litigation. So they changed the name to Wizardry, Proving Grounds of the Mad Overlord. There was other video games at the time doing similar things, but one of the things that made wizardry stand out was that first-person view that I was talking about. It was all very wireframe and we had seen it in other games, but never in a role-playing game like this. But in a role-playing game like this, it felt almost unnecessary and yet more immersive. I'd like to talk a little bit about the creators of this game. We'll start off with Andrew Clifford Greenberg. He was born in 1957, co-creator of Wizardry. In addition to making games, Greenberg is also a patent attorney working at firms in Florida and California. Robert Woodhead was the co-founder of Sirotech, later become Sirtec, which he founded with Norman and Robert Sirotech. His big splash, obviously, was wizardry. He would also create the game Star Maze. He would work on a lot of things, including two very early antivirus applications and other video games. He would then, as a hobby, he got into robot fighting, If you heard my episode on the film Real Genius, he is credited in the film, as is Wizardry and Surtek mentioned, but he is given the great title of Hacking Consultant, I want to go into a little more detail about the development of the game. It began as a student project back at Cornell in the 70s and was in a playable state by 1979 and was played by students there. And it drew influences from other games that were available, a lot of them on the Play-Doh system, but things that were floating around in the air. There's a lot of creativity at this point, people trying to figure out what to do with games and also sharing those ideas publicly with people. They wrote the game in Applesoft Basic, but Basic was a little too slow to run the game. So they would rewrite the game in Pascal, which is another programming language. And then they had to wait because the technology kind of needed to catch up with their code so that they could run it on home computers. And so we get to 1981 and the game is released. It took years for them to create this game, but all of that time was really good for the game because people got to test it, people got to play it, and they got to improve it. And then they had the Serotech family, who were business people, who looked at what was being distributed out in the computer world where people were selling games in baggies or just handing them over in envelopes. And he said, no, this has to look professional. We need professionally printed manuals. We need good-looking box. And that really differentiated the game from others. What I found interesting was that Certec would publish a revision to the game. And nowadays, if you want to publish a revision to a game, they just release an update. But how did you do that back in the day? Most companies didn't bother. It went out the door, and what was broken was broken. But they put in a bunch of new features, fix some stuff, and you could send away to get a copy of the revision for $5 if you wanted to, if you weren't happy with the quality of the original game. So innovative even there. Using an Apple, too, is very easy. The only hard part is getting your kid away from it. You see, apples are the leading computers in schools, so even though you bought it to help you work at home, your kid will want to use it for his own homework. Of course, if all else fails, there's one last thing you can try. Get him an Apple of his own. The game shipped in September 1981, and was a big hit for the Apple II. By June 30th, it had sold 24,000 copies, making it one of the best-selling RPGs in North America, not just the United States, up until that point. Two other games that were similar, Temple of Apshai, which had come out in 1979, sold 30,000 copies, and Ultima, another amazing game, which came out the same year, sold 20,000 copies. In its first three years, it would sell 200,000 copies and outsell the original Ultima. But don't worry, Ultima did pretty well in the long run. To show you how popular it was, when the game was released, strategy guides were released. Now I had seen strategy guides for things like Pac-Man, something you would buy separately to learn how to play the game better, but to come out with a strategy guide that was sold by a different company for a computer game, this was all new territory. Eventually, the success that we were seeing here would lead to a series of games and would help set standards for computer RPGs moving forward. At the time of its release, it was very well received. In Space Gamer issue 46, Forrest Johnson said, Wizardry represents a leap in computer game design. It is certainly the best D&D style computer game on the market. And then Dragon Magazine number 65, which was in 1982. And Dragon Magazine is part of TSR who created and owned Dungeons & Dragons at the time, although the magazine was supposed to be independent. Bruce Humphrey in that magazine stated, there's so much good about this game. It's difficult to side where to begin. It is not easily beaten or solved. I recommend it to anyone tired of mediocre programs and ho-hum dungeon encounters. CGW, Computer Gaming World, said it was one of the all-time classic computer games. So across the board, people loved this game. Even years later, people would be lauding the game, and its re-releases and many of its sequels were very well received as well. Wizardry and Ultima would kind of be competing against each other, although I wonder if the creators would think that. And it wouldn't be until 1986 that Ultima games started to receive higher scores in reviews than Wizardry. That's when Ultima 4 came out, and I really liked Ultima 4. They would port this game to lots of different systems. The Apple II, the Commodore 64 and 128, the NES, the Game Boy Color, the Mac, the MSX2, the NEC PC 9801, the Super Famicom, TurboGrafx-16. Now that NEC is important because it was very popular in Japan. And that popularity, along with what we would see in Ultima, would inspire the JRPG genre that would follow. And Japan would really embrace... Wizardry, and Ultima. There are eight main games in the Wizardry lineup, and that doesn't include a large number of spin-off games. And as I mentioned, the game was very popular in Japan, and they would have many more releases there than we had in the United States, with games that are spin-offs, not direct sequels. So, you had the original game, Wizardry, Proving Grounds of the Mad Overlord. That would be followed by Wizardry 2, The Knight of Diamonds, which followed the very next year. Then the year after that, 83, you had Wizardry 3, Legacy of Lyle Gauman. Not sure if I'm saying that right. Wizardry, The Return of Werdna. Uh-oh, Andrew's back. Wizardry 5, Heart of the Maelstrom. Wizardry 6, Bane of the Cosmic Forge. Wizardry 7, Crusaders of the Dark Savant. And then finally, in 2001, Wizardry 8, which is the last game in the series. Now, as I mentioned, this game is mentioned in Real Genius. There is an acknowledgement at the end for Sirtek and Wizardry. They say thanks to Sirtek for Wizardry. Can't make a good movie without playing some Wizardry. From High Technology, the computer store. Introducing Apple II, the easy-to-operate home computer. Just hook it up to your TV to create dazzling color displays. Or you can balance your checkbook. Kids can teach themselves arithmetic. Or the family can invent their own Pong games. The possibilities are endless. It's called Apple II, the personal computer. See it at High Technology, the computer store. Now, I printed out my hometown paper where I found a mention of wizardry, but I also went and looked for some of the earliest mentions I could find of wizardry in general, especially from 1981. I was able to find mentions of wizardry in papers from my area, including my home paper that my family read, stuff from 1981 and 1982. Let's look at 1981 first. There's an ad from Red Bank, New Jersey. That's where Kevin Smith, who did Clerks and Mallrats, did a lot of his work. And it is the Computer Forum, which is a company that sold computers. I would imagine this is a pretty small outfit, but they are selling Vic 20s, Texas Instrument computers, and they have a list of their software. And this is the first mention I'm seeing. And they have Adventure International, Big Five, Online Systems, Epics. That's probably one most people have heard of. Obviously, Texas Instruments, TI, Atari. And there it is. Surtec with one game, Wizardry, which they spell wrong. They put two Zs in it, which is kind of cool. Maybe it should be two Zs. They have a modem here, the one that you see in War Games where you put the phone on the cradle. They're selling that for $400. They have a cassette drive here for the Atari for $144. A couple of printers here ranging from about $575 to $900. And you could buy a plexiglass stand for your printer for just $29.99. There's a lot of interesting stuff in this. Just turning the page here. You have a Christmas sale at Video Center, where they're selling VCRs for about $600. If you wanted a Sanyo, that's the most expensive one you can get for $625. A video disc player from Zenith, $349.95. So the VCRs are more expensive than the video disc players. I guess we could all see that the VCR was going to be a big deal. Then there's an ad for Child World, mostly Strawberry Shortcake, but there's also a nice section on Dukes of Hazard and Stompers. Then an even bigger ad for Child World, where they're selling Hungry Hungry Hippos, Invaders from Space, the Quiz Whiz Challenger, of course Perfection. I think I've talked about Perfection. I do not like Perfection. It makes me very uneasy, the game Perfection. A timer and the shooting the pieces in your face, just terrible. They are selling some Atari games at this point. The prices are starting to go down. In 81, you're getting some older games for about 18.87. Asteroids is still 27.97 and Missile Command is still 21.87. Oh, there's an ad for Van Barn. Your one-stop shop for all things van related. You can get a musical horn. It can play jingle bells, dixie and many others. You know a lot of people who are watching The Dukes of Hazzard were putting dixie on there. You can get a universal van ladder, a van roof rack and Then knives, clam knives and fish and fillet knives, which seems weird for Van Barn to be selling knives, but what you do in your van is up to you. I found this great 1982 ad from a place called Allied Hobbies, which is now called Park Hobbies. I printed this out because they are selling Wizardry for the Apple for $36 in 1982, which was regularly $46 according to them. And then right next to it, they're selling the Dungeon Game for $6.99 and the Dungeons and Dragons Expert Set, normally $12 for $7.99. And they say they have all books, modules, and dice in stock for D&D. I would love to go back in time and spend some time there. But let's go to my area, and we're in 1982, it's Christmas time, and you're going to Burgers. And why are you going to Burgers? Because they have a lot of great stuff, including computers, and they are selling the Texas Instruments TI-99-4A system for $599, and then you get a mail-in rebate that'll bring it down to $499. But a couple of pages later, they have an Apple II, which is $1,000 off. But you get the whole system, that includes a monitor, disk drive, and that will be $1,995. And in the image that they're selling this is Wizardry, the beautiful Wizardry box, normally $50 according to them. What else are you getting here? You're getting some blank Maxell discs, you're getting Frogger, Choplifter, Snooper Troops, a joystick, and the Choplifter on the screen. I wish it was Wizardry. But it's amazing that you would go to Bambergers. For those not from the area, Bambergers was a department store with branches in New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and New York. And they were headquartered in Newark, New Jersey. And their parent company was Macy's. But they were their own thing and very popular in my area. Fun fact, the WOR radio station, which would become WRTV Channel 9, was established by the Bamberger Broadcasting Service in 1922, because many times these department stores were the ones creating radio stations. Unfortunately, the last Bamberger's closed in 1986, but this was a high point here, selling computers at Bamberger's, which I don't think most people would associate with Bamberger's if you were familiar with Bamberger's. Here's an ad from 1984, where Wizardry 1, 2, and 3 are available. And the price is still pretty high. Wizardry 1, $42.95. Wizardry 2, $29.95. And Wizardry 3, $33.95. So Wizardry 1, still the most expensive of the Wizardries, but you need it. Some of the other stuff they were selling at Bamberger's, and I will share these in my bonus clippings. But they have some great boom boxes. Some of these look really familiar and Walkmans. Mostly Panasonic and Sanyo stuff. Although here's a Fisher. They have some color TVs. A Sony Betamax for $449. That'll be money well spent. And then here's what I was looking at because I like stereo equipment. They have a Sony Stereo. It's really nice looking for $499. You get three components. Tuner, cassette, and turntable. Two fairly large speakers. And then here Technics. Technics. Depending on how you pronounce it, which is what I would have wanted. They have an older cassette player here, nice-looking one. Got push buttons here. They wanted $129 for it, which is in good condition, probably what you'd pay for it nowadays. They also have some stuff from Iowa and Fisher, of course. Lots of fun stuff. I could look at it for hours. <coughs> There's a season of savings at Bamberger's Holiday Sale. With 20 to 25% off all men's wool and down jackets. A Sanyo 100-watt stereo rack system with dual deck, $499. Samantha Scott Letter Handbag, special purchase, just $25. 25 to 40% off selected junior sweaters. And Krupp's Compact Food Slicer, just $39.99. Stores open till 10 p.m. during Bamberger's Holiday Sale, Thursday through Saturday. Wizardry came out at the same time as Ultima. And both of them would be very influential. Wizardry, in fact, would be very influential on Ultima when it moved forward and realized some of the things in Wizardry were definitely things that you needed, like party-based combat. But other games like Final Fantasy and The Bard's Tale would be heavily influenced by these games, and we probably would not have one without the other. When you look at the gameplay, the actual mechanics of the game system and how it was similar to D&D, you had some pretty advanced concepts that would take root in role-playing games, and a lot of those were already out there, but Wizardry put them in a package. Stuff like the higher classes that I talk about, the prestige classes, those things were out there in the role-playing world being talked about, but Wizardry put them in the spotlight. And for future game developers who had played the game, they wanted to see more of that because it just made sense. It's as if Woodhead and Greenberg really got this. They understood it. They could see what made a game fun, and they put it into this game. And when you look at the influence it had on the JRPGs, the games in Japan, and how popular and huge games like Final Fantasy, you can't really help but appreciate what now looks like a very simple game. And yes, it's simple, but it's still very playable. And I'm not just talking about a reboot or a recode, a 3D version. People are still iterating on the original game, and a fan base of it continues to thrive. I'm saying the original code of the game. It's just amazing. If you want an example, do a search for ZimLab and see what they've done with the game. There are a couple of games in your life that you really remember. And for many, it's just the games they played on consoles. But for a very lucky group of people who were into role-playing and had access to a computer in the early 80s, they got to witness wizardry firsthand. And from there, they got to watch this genre grow and know where it started. So if you do appreciate the roots of things, if you do like to think about where great things come from, point your browser toward one of the emulators to play Wizardry, or pick up a version on Steam, or get into retro computing or emulation and try it. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at how playable it is. At the very least, you'll understand why the games we play are the way they are. It's because of Wizardry. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at Retroist.com. You can follow me on social media. I'm at most major social media sites at Retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy on Twitter and Twitch. He's at PeachyPixel8. That's the word Peachy, the word Pixel, and the number 8. If you'd like to support the show, you could do so by giving it a 5-star review wherever you download it. It's really those 5-star reviews that help the show, and if you can take the time to do it, I really would appreciate it. If you'd like to support the show further, The Retroist is on Patreon. Drop by Patreon.com Retroist. Supporters of the show get bonus episodes, bonus tracks, bonus scans, and access to The Retroist Discord, the greatest retro community. Community on the internet and you better believe it has a couple of wizardry fans thanks to everyone for listening to the show and i hope you have a great weekend <laughs> clean your disc drives cleaning your disc drives takes only a few minutes and makes them work better clean your drives every second week this has been a retrous production Goodbye.